if you have your Bibles, I see that I'm expecting that a lot of you don't have your Bibles. So if you don't have your Bibles, you have your phone, but if you do have your Bibles, open up your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. Right? There's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. And today's passage is 1 Samuel chapter 1. And today's lesson, the title of today's lesson is God Hears and God Answers. God Hears and God Answers. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. But in the weeks ahead, we are going to be looking at the Bible somewhat closely. So I think it will help you to have your Bibles with you. But if you don't, don't worry, because back in the olden days, back in the times of the Old Testament, most people did not have their own scrolls or their own uh, codexes and their own Bibles. And so the only time they heard God's word was basically in a gathering when someone would open up their Bible or, or their scroll and read out loud the word of God. So even though it is a lengthy chapter, it's 28 verses, I'm going to read all 28 verses, and in honor of God's word and maybe to stretch our legs, why don't I have everyone stand up? So if all of you will stand up and let me read out loud 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Scripture reads, Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now he had two wives, and the name was one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now that man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to Yahweh there. And the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, and he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her, her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but Yahweh had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. And so it would happen year after year. As often as she went up to that house of Yahweh, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. And she, bitter of soul, prayed to Yahweh and wept despondently. And she made a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, 
if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a seed amongst men, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it happened as she multiplied her praying before Yahweh that Eli was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before Yahweh. Do not consider your maidservant as a vile woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great complaint and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your servant woman find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now then there arose again early in the morning, and they worshipped before Yahweh, and turned back and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. Now it happened in due time that Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel saying, because I have asked him of Yahweh. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the young boy is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before Yahweh and stay there forever." And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what is good in your eyes. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took up with her uh, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of Yahweh in Shiloh, although the boy was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the young boy to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to Yahweh. For this young boy I prayed, and Yahweh has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to Yahweh, as long as he lives, he is dedicated to Yahweh, and so he worshiped Yahweh there. Let's pray one more time. Dear God, we pray that you will give us understanding of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, have you recently asked a question, where is God? Like in this world that's so evil, broken, hopeless? Why doesn't God do something? Does he care and is he listening? Well, 1 Samuel is a book of hope. 
1 Samuel is one of God's ways to show us that though it seems like he's so far away, that he's so distant, that he's actually imminent. He's near to us. And I think it's interesting that 1 Samuel begins its focus not on the father of this final judge of Israel, but on his mother. And so as we meet Hannah, we'll see that even in the most dire predicament, and when nobody seems to understand, God hears and God answers. Well, let's take a couple minutes just to give you a little introduction to 1 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. It wasn't two books. So in, you remember in some places in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, they're separate books or maybe even separate letters. But 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book, but since it got so long that practically they would divide the scroll into two scrolls and thought, ah, the halfway point is when you know, Saul dies. We'll just have 1 Samuel be until Saul dies and 2 Samuel being the start of King David's reign. Now, who wrote 1 Samuel? Like if you go to the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, probably written by Peter, you would think, and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, written by John. But who wrote 1 Samuel? Well, we don't quite know, but a lot of people think that the first 24 chapters was definitely influenced by Samuel. So we'll learn more about Samuel in the weeks ahead. So the first part of Samuel was probably either written or reliably uh, the resource was from Samuel. But the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel was probably prepared by another prophet, maybe Nathan or a guy named Gad, um, but, but we don't know. When was 1 Samuel written? Well, we know that 1 and 2 Samuel, because they're together as one book, it had to have been written at least after King David. And we actually know that it had to be written at least one or two generations after Israel divides in two. Because there's a verse in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 6, when it says that there's this guy named Ziglag who belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And so, so we think that 1 and 2 Samuel was probably written at least a couple of generations after the kingdom split in two, somewhere maybe in 10th or 9th century BC. Now, what's the circumstance uh, surrounding 1 and 2 Samuel? Like, what's going on here? Well, hopefully some of you are familiar with the story of Israel, right? After Moses dies, there's... Joshua, the warrior, the military leader, and he, he leads Israel to conquer Canaan. And then afterwards, uh, there was a period called the period of the judges, which lasted several hundred years. And it was probably one of the, the saddest, darkest times of Israel, right? Israel did some terrible things. And then what God would do is God would raise up someone called the judge, a little bit different than a judge in a courtroom, but we call them judges, and they would help Israel to try to get a little bit better and to, to overcome their difficult circumstance. And then this went over and over and over again. So Israel did bad things, 
God punished Israel, and then a judge would help deliver the, the people of Israel. And in fact, at the very last verse of Judges, it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I remembered when I first read that verse when I was in elementary school and junior high, when I read that verse, I thought, wow, that's a good thing, that everyone did their best to do what was right. Well, I later understood that, that that's actually a bad word. <laughs> it's, a, it's a condemnation that, that everyone didn't care about the rules of God. They made up their own rules. And so when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, it was a description of how terrible Israel is. And in a few weeks, we'll actually look back in the book of Judges. There are some chapters in Judges that it's even hard to have kids you know, around when we read, just because of how terrible that time was. And so it's in this terrible time that First Samuel starts. And, and the people of this time, including Ruth, Ruth probably lived from 1150 BC to 1090 BC, and First Samuel starts probably in the middle of her life. This dark time, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, God comes in and the story shows us that God hears and God answers. Well, we're going to divide chapter one into five sections. Hannah's predicament. And for some of you kids, I think you probably don't know what the word predicament is, but it's kind of like a situation, but it's usually a negative or a bad situation. So Hannah's predicament, Hannah's vow, Eli's misunderstanding, God's answer, and then family obedience. So let's look first at Hannah's predicament, and it's in verse 1 to 8 that we see Hannah's predicament. And this story in verse 1, the story begins in a city called Ramathim Zophim. That's a pretty long name for a city. And you just need to know that uh, this little town was in the middle of Israel, and it's about five miles north of what will later be Jerusalem. So if you have some idea, recollection of where Jerusalem is, think that about five miles north, and there's this city called Ramathim Zophim. And because it's such a long name, in the rest of 1 Samuel, the city will be referred to as Rama, R-A-M-A. A-H. And the city of Rama is going to occur 15 more times in this book. So it's an important city. So that's where the story takes place. And we're introduced to a man named Elkanah. And you probably were shocked when you first read this that Elkanah had not one, but two wives, right? The first wife was Hannah, and the second wife was Penina. And we think that it probably was that Hannah was the first wife. And Penina was the second wife. And it's very similar to you guys. Some of you may remember the story of Abraham. Remember Abraham? What was the name of his first wife? Does anyone remember? Uh, yeah, Rebecca was one of the wives of the patriarchs. But Sarah, I think, was the name of the first wife. Name of the first wife. And you remember... Abraham loved Sarah. 
Sarah was beautiful. She was his first wife, precious. But Sarah couldn't have children. And Abraham waited and waited and waited as long as he could. And finally, although not named a wife, Abraham had a child through a second woman named Hagar, named Ishmael. I think this is what happened with Elkanah. You might think, oh, Elkanah is such a terrible man. He has two wives. God doesn't want us to have two wives. Well, Elkanah probably loved Hannah. First love, my pride and joy, and year after year, no children. And so Elkanah probably broke Hannah's heart and said, you know what? I want children. God wants me to have children and marries a second woman, Penina. And perhaps if Hannah was already disappointed, sees that Penina not just have one child, but multiple children. So just to be clear that in the Bible, God is very clear that, that, that in marriage, there should only be one man and one woman. And we call that for the kids. There's a word, monogamy. So monogamy for the kids, it just means that um, we should be married to one person at a time, not two. And, you know, God tells us that in Genesis chapter 2. But th the first occurrence when a man marries more than one wife was this terrible man named Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. And interesting, God regulates, but he doesn't endorse polygamy. So monogamy is being married to one person at a time. Polygamy means you're married to more than one person at a time. God gave some regulation regarding polygamy in Deuteronomy chapter 21, but it was never a part of God's plan for a person to be married to more than one person at a time. But understand, Elkanah probably just was weak in faith and said, I wanted to have children, and so if I can't have children through Hannah, I'm going to have children through another woman. Now, getting back to Hannah's predicament, Hannah's predicament was not all bad. In fact, it was mostly good. There were at least three important blessings that Hannah had. Look, if you still have your Bibles open. So the first thing is that Hannah was wealthy. Hannah had money. And how do we know this? Well, there's two clues. The first is, I've already alluded to, is that Elkanah, her husband, had two wives. And for all you husbands in the room, it takes already quite a bit of money <laughs> to support one wife <laughs> and one household. You need even more money to be able to support more than one household. And the term in verse 1, a certain man, is a term that's commonly described a man of good standing, a man of wealthy standing. So the first was that Hannah lived in a household that was in general considered wealthy and not poor, very different from Ruth, for example. The second is that Hannah's husband was a worshiper of God. Elkanah worshiped God, and, and we see this, right? Every year, Elkanah brings his family 
to worship at Shiloh. And they were likely observing the annual feast that's described in Judges chapter 21, verse 19. And Shiloh is about halfway between Shechem and Bethel. So uh, I'm not going to draw a map, but if uh, Jerusalem's down here and Ramah's a little bit further north, you would have to go about 20 miles northeast to get to Shiloh. And during that time, 20-mile travel, I would say, is at least a one-day travel. It could even be a couple of days. So, so Elkanah brought his entire family every year to obey God and to worship God. And you understand that uh, sometimes, you know, it can be very hard if you were to be married to someone who wasn't a follower of God, who wasn't a worshiper of God, but Hannah's husband was a true worshiper of God. The third is that Hannah was loved by Elkanah. Look down at verse 5, right? It says that he, that's Elkanah, loved Hannah. So she was a wife who was loved. She was not forlorn. She was not ignored. And we even see here that Elkanah during these feasts would give a double portion because he loved Hannah. And you guys remember, do you remember the story of Joseph, right? Joseph who wore the coat of many colors. And there was a point where it was in Egypt that he had all his brothers over, including Benjamin, right? And so they brought out food to everyone. And because Joseph loved his full brother, Benjamin, in a special way. Benjamin got five times as much food as the other brothers because that was his way of showing love. And so, so Elkanah loved Hannah. And so some of your Bibles might say that uh, uh, Elkanah gave a double portion. Another way that it could be translated is he gave a choice portion. So maybe to Hannah, it wasn't that, you know, she, she wanted to eat more meat, so we gave him, you know, two, two drumsticks instead of one drumstick, but it was the best drumstick. He, he, would, he would get all the pieces of meat, and the best one went to Hannah. So Hannah was wealthy, husband, worshiper of God, loved by, loved by Elkanah, so, so Hannah had blessing, but obviously there was also hardship. There were two important hardships. The first is quite obvious. Hannah had no children, right? Verse 2, or going down to verse 5. Yahweh, God had closed her womb, and he says it again in verse 6. Yahweh closed her womb. And I want you guys in this room to understand, especially for the women in this room, if you think that our Heavenly Father does not understand the pain and the hardship of infertility, um, I think God actually does understand. Because think with me, that Israel, the nation of Israel is God's people. And what God wanted was his people to have children to be faithful and worshiping God but Israel did not produce any faithful children for God. In a sense, Israel was infertile as it pertains to God's holy expectations. 
So, so, so God understands infertility. There's in fact parallels between a woman's fertility, Hannah's infertility, and the nation of Israel. So Hannah had no children. And the second is that Hannah has this rival, Penina. Look at verse 6. It says that Penina would provoke her bitterly, provoke Hannah bitterly, to irritate her. One translation is severely irritate. I think your ESVs grievously irritate. This word irritate also means to humiliate, to bring greater shame. And I even want to pause for a moment to talk a little bit about shame. I, I don't know if churches or pastors talk about shame much, but there's a difference between guilt and shame. See, when you and I do something wrong and we get caught, you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I got caught. Your conscience might make you feel guilty. But it's something else to feel shame. Now, sometimes a person, whether it's a child, some of you in this room, or an adult, you and I can do something that's really embarrassing, something that's really shocking. And when that gets exposed, we feel guilt and we feel shame. So for example, if I were to look at something that I'm not supposed to look on the internet and you all catch me doing it, I would feel guilty because I, I know that that's wrong, but I would also feel shame because it's embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know. There, there are just some things that bring on shame. But notice too that shame doesn't just occur when you and I do something wrong. Shame can occur when we don't do anything wrong. Like I don't know if any of you have felt like you're not attractive, ugly. There's nothing wrong with that, you didn't do anything. But if you feel embarrassed about your appearance and showing yourself in front of others, that is a feeling of shame. Or imagine if uh, most everyone in your, in your age group, all right, are either dating or you come into the church where most everyone in your, 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 I guess your age group are married and come with your spouses and you come alone because you're single, you're unmarried or widowed, and the awkwardness that comes with that, you didn't do anything wrong. There's no guilt, but there's a sense of shame. See, I think one of the, the most dramatic parts of Hannah isn't just that she wanted children and she didn't have children, but in her culture, there was shame with being infertile. Like, she would ask herself, like, what's wrong with my body? Like, I, I, I love my husband. My husband loves me. I want children, but I don't have children. And, and the neighborhood, the town around me would say, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? It's, it's time for you to have children, Hannah. What, what gives? Did you do God, something that, you know, now 
requires God to close your womb. And so this, this hardship of, that's exacerbated by her rival Penina. Penina probably would have took a knife figuratively and stabbed Hannah all the more because she was in second place, right? So she would somehow, to console herself, probably tells Hannah, see, you should feel the way that you're feeling. You don't deserve your position. I should be the one who has that position. And of course, her husband tries to console Hannah, right? Because he loved her. Verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not want to eat? Why is your heart sad? Well, obviously, it's because she had no children and the shame that comes with that. So what was Hannah's predicament? Well, there was blessing. She was wealthy. She was loved. Husband, a worshiper of God. But there's also hardship. No children. A rival. Uh, a sense of, uh, of emptiness and shame. Well, let's go to the second uh, section here. And the second section is in verse 9 to 11. It's Hannah's vow. Hannah's vow. And I love this. So if you still have your Bibles, look down at verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now let's pause right there. Because look up at verse 7. And what does the text say? That, that Penina would provoke Hannah so that Hannah wept and would not eat. And now in verse 9, it says that Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. So one more, I don't want to belabor the point, but in terms of infertility, I've been told, all right, that some uh, uh, men and women, when they really want kids and they don't have kids, that on Mother's Day, Mother's Day is always a happy time, or it should be a happy time, right? Mothers get hopefully showered at least one day a year with love and maybe a, a nice meal. But uh, kids get to, you know, celebrate. But if you don't have children and you can't have children, Mother's Day is not a day of, of celebration. It is an annual reminder of the emptiness that's in your household, that's in your body, because you have no children. And that's what happens with Hannah. This isn't Mother's Day. This is the annual feast to Shiloh. Every year going up is a, another reminder, another year has passed. My rival has children. I have none. And she wouldn't be able to eat because she was so hurt. But something changes in verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. And, and what happens? What happens is this. Hannah is ready to make a vow. Kids, do you know what a vow is? It's, it's like a promise. It's, it's something that you're committing to that's very serious. And oftentimes a vow is made to God. If you remember the story of, of Jacob, Jacob makes a vow with God. 
Jacob tells God, uh, you know, if you bring me back, you know, home safely, I think it's in Genesis 28, all right, then I will make you my God and I will follow you wherever you go. So Jacob makes a vow. And a lot of times, people in the Old Testament make vows to God when they are desperate, right? People generally don't make vows to God when everything's going well. You generally make a promise to God when things are, are going terribly. And, and you're, you almost feel like the only thing perhaps that might change God's disposition is if you consecrate yourself with a vow. And so that is exactly what Hannah is doing here at the start of verse 9. Now, get this, kids. So in the olden days, a married woman could not make a vow just by herself. She needed and she required the husband to confirm and not nullify that vow. And that description, that requirement is actually biblical. It's found in Numbers chapter 30, verse 6 to 15. And so sometime between verse 8 and verse 9, I'm just using my imagination. Elkanah is saying, why are you so sad, right? You've got me. <laughs> Am I not better than 10 sons? And they talk it over, and Elkanah probably says, you know what? If you want to make this vow, all right, I'm not going to stop you. And so Hannah eats and drinks in Shiloh, and she gets ready to make this vow. And what is this vow? Let's look down at verse 10. She's bitter of soul. She prayed to Yahweh and wept despondently. Verse 11, and she made a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a seed amongst men, then here's the vow. I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So this might sound strange to you, but this has a lot of similarities with what is sometimes called the Nazarite vow, which you and I can read more about in Numbers chapter 6. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow, all right, it's, it's a special vow. First of all, it's voluntary, all right? There's no, there's no obligation. No one in the Old Testament <laughs> is obligated or required to make a Nazarite vow. It was purely voluntary. And in general, it's only for a period of time. I don't know if any of you have fasted, meaning that you don't eat food or you know, abstain from certain types of food, usually for a period of time, usually to pray or for some purpose. But obviously, fasting is only designed for a temporary period of time, right? Because we're human beings, you know, we need to eat. So the Nazarite vow in general, was designed as a limited time of voluntary consecration. And what does it include? It includes no eating or drinking from anything that comes from grapes. And the reason why this is in there is because grapes 
were often a, a symbol and a source of physical pleasure. Right? Back in the olden days, they didn't have M&Ms, Snicker bars, cotton candy. But food that came from grapes that had sweetness, that was pleasurable. It wasn't even just to get drunk or the alcohol part. It, it was pleasurable. And, and so in the Nazarite vow, you cannot touch, eat, drink anything that came from grapes. And, and, and secondly, they were uh, forbidden or they voluntarily refrained from cutting their hair or to shave their beards, not even to trim it. And what does that mean? Well, that was to signify an abstinence from human adornment. I think you guys understand this. Uh, I think my family does. Oftentimes, usually it's about once a month, my wife will tell me, hey, you need a haircut. <laughs> Your hair is going out of control. I think my wife would be quite upset with me if I go, you know, two months, three months without a haircut because I would just look unkempt, unseemly. Well, you can imagine, if you don't cut your hair, trim your beard uh, with a period of time, what's going to uh, be a consequence is the, the lack of your adornment of your physical appearance. So this person who has a Nazarite vow is to abstain from physical pleasures and to abstain from any human adornment to be consecrated to God and God alone. And, you know, get this. A Nazarite is not supposed to touch any dead people because that would make them unclean. If their father or mother dies, they couldn't attend a funeral and come up to the body because they would be ceremonially unclean. But look at what Hannah does. Hannah says that not only is my son, if you give me a son, going to to be a Nazarite and to fulfill these vows temporarily, but it's going to be for his entire life. Have you ever thought as parents, like, what you want for your children? I think sometimes parents might be more focused on education, career, opportunity. How much effort is put on trying to get our children to be Christ followers? But this becomes Hannah's vow. So we see her predicament. She's childless. We see her vow. Uh, if you give me a child, God, I will dedicate him for lifelong service. Third, let's just briefly look at Hannah's or Eli's misunderstanding. So in verse 12 to 14, we see that Hannah is just mouthing words silently, praying to God in public, and Eli the high priest, is watching. And the reason why this is significant, there's two reasons. One is because people in these days don't generally pray silently. Many of you in this room pray silently, right? Sometimes you go to a restaurant, you're like, I want to make a scene. We'll just pray silently before we eat. But during this time, most people who prayed would pray out loud. So for Eli to see um, Hannah, you know, mouthing words and nothing comes up, she, he was immediately suspicious. But the second thing is that if you were to charge someone as being drunk near the tabernacle, the penalty, according to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, is death. 
So Eli is actually accusing Hannah of doing something that is worthy to be punished with the death punishment. Have you ever been misunderstood? Because obviously, you know, Hannah wasn't drunk. She was in her most grievous state of mind. And then to have the high priest, a representative of God, misunderstanding you. Well, if you've ever felt like you were misunderstood by a family member, a friend, even a church leader, understand that Hannah went through that. Job went through that. Remember when Job had all his suffering, his wife and his friends misunderstood. So the predicament, the vow, the misunderstanding. Let's quickly look at God's answer. God's answer. I love this. Look down at verse 17. Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you petition that you have asked for him. Let's just even pause with this phrase, go in peace. It, it, it carries a sense that I'm giving you a blessing, a full life that comes from God. Jonathan, right before he leaves uh, with his meeting with uh, uh, David. We'll learn about this in a couple of months. Jonathan says to David, go in peace inasmuch as much as we have sworn to each other in the name of Yahweh. And in fact, the priests were actually required by God in Numbers chapter 6 and in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to pronounce blessing on their people. God says uh, to Aaron, speak to Aaron and to his son saying, you shall bless the sons of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to minister for him and to bless in his name. But interesting, the only description of a priest blessing an individual is right here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And, and, and he says, may God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Notice another thing about what Eli is saying here. When he says, may the God of Israel grant you petition, Eli is leaving the outcome to God. Eli isn't saying, okay, I'm the high priest. You will get what you want in your petition and what you're asking. Eli is, is relying on God because all of this comes from God and God alone. And how does Hannah respond? Hannah says, let your servant woman find favor in your sight. And then something dramatically happens in the second half of verse 18. Look at it with me again. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> she didn't just get pregnant. <laughs> Her situation didn't change. So why did she leave, go on her way, continue to eat as an outflow that uh, her hardship didn't overwhelm her when she couldn't eat and her face was no longer sad? It wasn't because she had a good poker face. Well, I think it's an indication that somehow 
Hannah walked away and God gave her the faith, the confidence that I'm a God of hope, that even in this world that you're living in, Hannah, where it seems so bad and that I'm not there, that I am there. And Hannah regains her confidence and her hope. And then after this change, then what happens in verse 19? Wakes up early, they go back home, 20 miles back down from Shiloh to Ramah. And then in verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceives and gives birth to a son. And I love the phrase, and God remembered her. Yahweh remembered her. So get this, everyone. You may think of this word remember as, ah, you know, God didn't forget, God remembers. But in the Old Testament, anytime the verb remember is preceded by Yahweh, there's not just a sense that God remembered in his mind, because of course, I mean, God doesn't forget, but this is a verb that indicates salvation, saving, and deliverance. In Genesis chapter 8, when Noah was in the ark after all the rain, it says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, and God remembered Noah. Or right uh, around the time when God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and was going to wipe out everyone, including Lot's family, it says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, and God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst even for all the people who were infertile. God remembered Sarah. God remembered Rebecca. In Genesis chapter 30, I'll just read, and God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Manoah's wife and Samson, Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And so if, if you feel like God doesn't hear sometimes and God isn't there, Never doubt that God remembers. The Bible says we can cast all of our anxieties on God, right? Because he cares. Ask and it will be given to you, right? Um, you know, who, who, like if you're a son, asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone or a fish, that he will give a snake, right? That how we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father give good to those who ask him? So Hannah's predicament, Hannah's vow, Eli's misunderstanding God's answer. Well, let's look at our final scene here, the family's obedience. And I think this is very important for us to dwell on for these final minutes. Let's look at verse 21. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. Now, you, you and I can't be 100% sure when Elkanah here in verse 21 says, pay his vow. Is he referring to his own vow? Maybe, maybe Elkanah made his own vow. Maybe as it relates to, you know, infertility, maybe something else. But I think from the context, most likely, this is referring to the vow that they made together. He made and consented with Hannah this lifelong Nazarite vow regarding their son. And then in verse 22, Hannah says, she didn't want to go up, right? 
So she said to Elkanah, I will not go up until the young boy is weaned. Then I will bring him. Then we will bring him and present him before Yahweh, and he will stay there forever. Now, um, for you kids there, wean kind of means like, you know, generally when you're done breastfeeding. And I don't know how many of you kids know, most of your moms, if they breastfed you, I would venture most moms six months, maybe a year. <laughs> but uh, in these days, children were usually weaned after three years of breastfeeding. All right. And we know that from other documents like 2 Maccabees. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 16, uh, scripture reads that males are counted when they are three years old. And so this is probably what Hannah was thinking. Uh, hey, um, I'm not bringing Samuel up yet, all right? I know it's been a year, <laughs> but give me more time. So either year two or more likely year three. And again, for some of you who are moms out there, you can only imagine holding a newborn infant, that skin-to-skin -skin contact, that nursing. It'd be one thing to give up your child, you know, after a few days. You know, some moms who, for some reason, they have difficulty taking care of their, their, their newborn baby will sometimes bring their child up for adoption. And, and that could be very hard for a mom. But it's one thing to only hold your newborn for a few minutes, a few hours, and then give the child up. I think it's another thing to nurse that child, all right? Not just for a few days, a few weeks, but several years. And the attachment that comes with this. And I love uh, Elkanah's response, right? He says, only may the Lord, or only may Yahweh, establish his word. And there's a little bit of debate here. Most of your Bibles, I think, says that only may the Lord, or only may Yahweh, establish his word. There's actually one um, popular English translation that says, only may Yahweh establish Hannah's word. But I think the original Hebrew text are, is clearly his word. So what Alkina is saying is that, may you, God, establish your word. And what Alkina is saying is that this vow is actually not just Hannah's vow. It's not just your vow, Alkina. It's my vow. I preordained all of this. Everything from start to finish, the fact that you had no children, that you went all these years, for, for me to rot in Hannah's heart to want to, 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 to pronounce this vow, this is all of my doing because one day you don't know it yet, but I am going to use Samuel to usher in my king, which will eventually provide the doorway for the king the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all my plan. And so Alcana is telling God, may you establish your word. You did all this. This is all a part of your plan. And look at the shift here between verse 24 and 25. I'll read verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, 
that's Hannah, she took him up, three-year-old bull, one effort of flour. And then look in verse 25, it switches, the pronoun switches. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the young boy to Eli. It wasn't just Hannah. When you and I read this, this is Elkanah and Hannah coming together. And notice here, you may not see it, but they brought one ephah of flour. So during the time of the Old Testament, when you um, uh, fulfill a vow, you will oftentimes bring in an offering, and it does include a three-year-old bull. But usually the requirement is three-tenths of an ephah. So that's the standard. But they brought in one full, one whole ephah. And an ephah is about 23 liters. So imagine, you know, you know those big Costco 50-pound bags of rice. So a 50-pound bag instead of a 10-pound bag. They were required to bring a 10-pound bag. But they brought the 50-pounder. I remember there was one time we were at a restaurant and we got really bad service. And my wife told me and said, you know, we shouldn't give any tip, All right? So I don't know if you do kids know that. When we go to a restaurant, usually here in Northern California, United States, we give a tip. So we give more money than we're required to pay. So I remember I said, I'd be too embarrassed not to give a tip. So I gave the bare minimum. But that wasn't the case with Hannah and Elkanah. They didn't say, oh, now, now we have to pull our end of the bargain. God gave us a child. And man, now we have to give the child back to God. They came with genuine, generous worship. Not just a 10-pounder, but the 50-pound bag of flour. Go down to verse 27, for this young boy I prayed, and Yahweh has given me my petition, which I asked. So I have also dedicated him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to Yahweh. So he worshiped Yahweh there. And again, I want to look at this last sentence. So he worshiped Yahweh there. Now, it actually doesn't say who he was. Some might think, oh, it's Eli. <laughs> Eli just sees this beautiful family. It's like, wow, I'm so touched. I'm going to worship God. Or there may be some that says it's, it's little Samuel. <laughs> he's three years old and he's chosen by God and he's going to get up and say a few words and, and worship God. But I think the context is actually pretty obvious that most likely the he is Elkanah. And again, this is the family coming together. And this obedience isn't just half-hearted. It's exuberant, it's genuine, and it's sincere. Well, in summary, let me ask you guys a question. What is your predicament today, boys and girls, grown-ups? Do you ever wonder, is God, does God remember me when things are going really bad? Is he even listening well, you can rest assured that the God of Elkanah, the God of Hannah, he's the same God today, right? He's watching, he's listening, and he cares. And so may we, in our private life, 
when we gather together, may we present our requests and ask God for a help. And let me just make this final note. Hannah's prayer wasn't just a list of requests. I think sometimes you and I, when things are really hard, we, we just think about prayer requests, right? Someone's sick. Let's pray that they get better. Um, you know, someone lost a job. Maybe they'll find a new job. Um, but Hannah's prayer also included her willfully and sacrificially offering him, herself, consecrating herself to God. I mean, the lesson of today's story is not that you and I should make a vow, and certainly not a lifelong Nazarite vow. But it does mean for all of us in this room that when we pray, that at least some of our prayers isn't just offering a list of requests, but it's us telling God that because of these requests, whatever's required of me, make me ready to be able to give it up for you and not because it's a deal with God, a transaction, but it's generous, sincere, uh, from the heart. And trust that God remembers, God hears, and God answers. Let's pray.